Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields, with more than 65 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, problem hauntings, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, and investigation of unusual paranormal activity. She has worked full-time in the field since 1983. And I can exhale now. Oh. <laughs> Rosemary, thank you for coming back on Ghostly Talk. It's been a, it's been a very long time. Um, and we're just honored to have you here again. Thanks for coming. Welcome back to Ghostly Talk after so many years. Well, I'm just delighted to be back on, Scott. Uh, I always love being on your show, uh, love doing events with you. I'm so glad to see you guys back out in the field again. I know you had a little hiatus there for a while. I yeah. think we all need those from time to time, by the way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be good to see you this summer, too. Yeah, we're going to see you. Uh, I mean, I guess we can talk about that for a second. We're going to be, we're all going to be at the uh, Haunted America Conference again uh, this year. June 20, what, oh, my God, I, why didn't I write that down? June 22nd and 23rd, right? I think so. Okay. That's right. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, I got it memorized, at least. We're all going to be there. Uh, you know, we've seen each other, like, the last three, it'll be our third year seeing each other there now, kind of with this, you know, kind of coming back and, with us coming back and doing our thing again. So it's always, yeah, it is always fun to see you there, and it's fun to see Troy uh, and Jen and everybody. It's really cool just to go there. And for, for us, it's just, uh, it's kind of like a reunion every year, <laughs> for, you know, because we don't really go to um, as many conferences as we used to back in the day, you know. So it is kind of our one year to see a lot of our friends uh, in, the, in the field, uh, including yourself. So, yeah, it's, it's fun to be back, at least on a more... Like like more like pulled back thing. I, I don't know how to, how do you say it? Is it. We're not we're not nearly. Well, we're, we're not working well. a table. We're not doing well. Well, we might do interviews this year. Like want like just assault people with our phones and be like talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> so I yeah, don't know. Yeah, who knows? We might do something like that. But but yeah, it'll be fun to see you there. Um, and again, everybody, that's the Haunted America Conference, uh, June twenty second and twenty third of this year in Alton, Illinois, Atrium Hotel and Conference Center. Check that out. So Rosemary. One thing that always blew our mind back in the day, even to this day about you, is, well, as we just read, uh, how long you've been doing this. And like you just said a minute ago, sometimes people need a hiatus, but I don't think you've ever taken a break, have you? <laughs> well, uh, I'm probably one of the few people who haven't. And uh, although, you know, from time to time, I've uh, pulled back on certain subjects because I and not because I didn't like them anymore. It's just that my attention went elsewhere uh, out of, you know, some other kind of priority. But it is true that I've, uh, I've gone full bore now um, since I started full-time in 1983. And I've, I've even uh, ratcheted things up. Um, and people ask me how I managed to do it. I don't know. I don't want to know because I don't want to wreck the magic, whatever it is. <laughs> I do sleep at night. Um, yes, it is true. I do sleep at night. Yeah. But I have a publishing company now. So in addition to writing my own books, I'm also publishing the works of other people. And uh, this uh, started for me some years ago. There were so many changes in the publishing industry that um, it was more expedient to, uh, to issue my own books. And in the course of that, I uh, met many people who were looking for publishers that uh, they didn't want to go the traditional route or it wasn't feasible for them. 
And an entire industry of independent publishing has sprung up in the last decade or so, and so I'm part of that. Oh. And so that's keeping me very busy. Yeah. And uh, I love it because I, I've worked as an editor in the past uh, for a variety of uh, settings, you know, magazines and newspapers and the wire service. And uh, so editing and publishing other people's books is now part of my um, contribution to the field. And uh, so the two of those things, speaking and writing my own books and doing other people's books, is keeping me very busy, but I love it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, I think, the, as you said, the publishing field has really changed um, especially in the last 10 years, I think the self-publishing thing is just more or less, I mean, I don't know, Amber, you, 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 you're with a publisher with your stuff, right? And um, I mean, I don't know, there's, I think there's just a lot more people who are self-publishing these No, days. there used to be, I think, more of a stigma if you were self-published. Oh, you were self, oh, you're self-published. You didn't, you didn't, you're but, not but, good enough. But Rosemary, isn't, and this isn't no, self-publishing. No, 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 no. And, but yeah. now people that are self-publishing or going to more independent, smaller, um, publishing houses yeah, yeah. um it's not such a bad it's not bad anymore it's not like oh you couldn't get published by the big one and yeah. um and you make more money because if you want to write you yeah. need money to get you by and feed you and all mm -hmm. that good stuff and yeah. publishers like i make peanuts like if someone goes and actually buys my book at like barnes and noble i yeah, think i yeah. get a quarter i don't even know if i get a quarter <laughs> For real, it's bad. So well, yeah. you know, you're you're absolutely right, Amber. That uh, the field has changed. And, you know, back in the day when I started in the '80s, uh, the field was owned by the big guys, the big publishing houses. Yep. And if you couldn't get published by an established publisher, you were nobody. Yep. Uh, if if you had to publish your own stuff, it was all like poor soul. Mm -hmm. You know, your stuff must really be bad. Uh, and now it's absolutely the other way because authors who have established themselves, especially with audiences. Um, they're walking away from traditional publishing houses for the very reasons you listed. A, they make more money. B, they get their work out right away instead of being in a publishing pipeline for two years, which is absolutely ridiculous. But I have taken on board uh, some uh, authors who have been working for some of the middle-level houses, um, mm -hmm. you know, not the HarperCollins, but, um, you know, smaller houses that are more uh, receptive to a lot of these topics. And it's it's like you said, they're making peanuts. And mm -hmm. as an independent, I have a great deal of flexibility uh, with the money that comes in. I can afford to pay authors more. And as an author myself, authors deserve to make good money off their work. Yep. Um, and the publishing houses have traditionally taken, you know, the the mother load. Mm. Well, I think, and I think this whole thing has been changing for a very long time, and. The more, I mean, this and this crosses everything, not just you know book publishing, but all types of other things. I think everybody seems to be moving more towards the independent route, or you know, not or self-publishing, or or working, as you said, with with smaller publishers, right? Um, I think people are, and like you, like the one thing you just said was very interesting. Yeah, there you get stuck into a pipeline, and yeah, I've seen, I've heard about people with projects that have, they've they've sat on projects for like five years in a pipeline, waiting saying, okay, we're going to do it, we just have to, you know, you're in line, basically, or something like that. And I don't think anybody, when you got a piece of work, 
that you want to get out there. Um, in five years' time, you've probably moved on. <laughs> you know, you moved on to something uh, Well, else. everything's obsolete, yeah. everything. And this was one of the motivations for me. Um, publishing started to change after the economic upheaval and collapse of 2008. Yeah. Publishers yeah. started shrinking their lines and consolidating. And so uh, one of the first areas to go uh, was uh, the paranormal. Um, publishers were focusing more on the mainstream audience, sure hits. You know, they wanted a book to be super successful right out of the starting gate. They didn't want to nurture yeah. anybody. They didn't want to serve any of the side markets. And um, information just moves too fast now. And when, when something is current, when it's hot, uh, if I can write a book, uh, research and write a book in uh, a matter of a few months, uh, I can then bring that book to market within a month or two instead of waiting a year or two. And that's a huge difference. Yeah, and that's the flexibility right there. And, I mean, just as you know, being independent podcasters, like we've been since day one, we've never really ever changed that. We, Doug and I, you know, even though Doug's kind of scarce these days with the show, um, back in those days, especially when we were younger, our whole thing was just that. We're like, we don't want to be controlled by anybody. We want to do it on our own, you know, at our own pace, on our own terms. And that's why I, I that's why I can still do stuff like this. Cause I mean, there were a few times where we were, we talked about doing stuff with other people and we, we would have the conversation and go, okay, well, these people want to work with us and maybe take this thing to the next level. And we both you know, came to the conclusion like this isn't going to be the same show, and we're going to end up killing each other probably as a result of this. And you know, our our, our you know the show was more important, and our friendship was more important, and stuff like that. And that's why we just like ourselves here just decided to keep this thing as independent as possible because we and we just nowadays especially we just do this whenever we want, <laughs> you know, and it just goes out there and people can listen to it and it's cool. So I mean. Well, there's not really any money here at all. <laughs> there's no money to be made from Ghostly Talk at all. We just do it because it's fun to do, and we can control it, and and we we write our own rules, right? Um, different, but the same when it comes to these things. Um, I just think it's I just like doing this because it's fun. <laughs> That's my whole thing now with, with doing with doing the podcast again here. You know? Yeah, it's this, we're definitely in an era of uh, independence and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, in the publishing end of things, it's one thing to self-publish, and it's another thing to be able to distribute and get yeah. your book into the marketplace. Yeah. And that's where a lot of authors uh, start running into problems if they don't if they don't already have a built-in uh, audience. And so, yeah. um, independents like me fill that gap because I've invested a lot of time and money in opening distribution channels internationally. Yeah. And yeah. so um, there are pipelines for getting books to the marketplace. It's stifling still to me. Every day, I'm still I I look with amazement um, at how fast information does travel these days. Right? How fast you know news travels these days. We've talked about that several times on the show. Just how fast um, a new well, as far as uh, the news cycle, for example. Um, I, I've seen stories that literally it's, it's in and out in one day as far as a news cycle is concerned. And that could be paranormal. That could be anything more or less. Um, so as an author um, and who's trying to put a book out, you know, something for people to read, that, that, that has to be so painful. And the only, it seems like the only way you could really go is to kind of do it on your own or work with a more of an, you know, an independent publisher. Uh, because I, as I said, even if you wait a year on something, 
as an as an artist or an author or whatever you might be, you're I know that's old hat. You don't want to do any. You you want to move on, right? So I think it seems like this independent route is the only way to go nowadays. Um, well, it it certainly is growing, and the uh, the sad thing is, and uh, that the traditional publishing industry. Um, they become like a dinosaur, and they're they're not really reacting and responding. Uh, yeah. They're still a lot of them are still operating on the old model. It's like uh, we have the brick and mortar distribution. Well, wake up, folks! A lot of the buying goes on the internet these days. Yeah. The brick and mortar is still important, but um, you know people are uh, looking for other avenues to get information, and and uh, I participate in some online like curated sites and blogs and things like that. It used to be in the old days that if I was researching a topic, I would hold everything for the book that was going to come out. And now there are things that I just I put out there uh, for immediacy. And uh, not everything is going to fit in a book, or if it goes into a book, um, it can yeah. be elaborated on later. But um, there's a constant need for this immediacy of information. Yeah. And that's one thing that kind of bums me out, too. Well, you, everything's content-driven, you know? It's, yeah. You got to get stuff out there. And like Rosemary said, how fast you got to get things out there yeah, yeah. these days. And, and frankly, people – I mean, look at, like, the cycle. We post something on Ghostly Talk, mm-hmm. and then, like, it's like you got maybe a day and a half of people clicking on it, and it's gone. And it's gone. And then you yeah. got to get something else out there. And uh, I wish the damn world would just slow down a little bit. <laughs> I can't keep up anymore. One of the things that you've been you've been busy, obviously, as we've said, you're always busy, Rosemary. Um, and this is something we've been talking about a lot on the show here lately. Is you know, uh, well, I guess more we're more of watching the, the Sky Watchers, I guess. But uh, contact alien contact, and you've been doing a lot of work in this stuff right now. What have you been working on with that? Uh, well, I've uh, always been interested in contact with um, entities and spirits uh, of, a ro- of a variety. Yeah. And for the past several years, I have focused on what we call alien or ET contact. And um, this is um, a-, a field that's enjoying a bit of a renaissance right now, uh, new interest in how people are transformed by their contact experiences. And okay. in, the, uh, in the ET realm, I prefer to call them aliens because we don't really know where a lot of them come from. They may not necessarily be extraterrestrials they might be interdimensionals you know parallel world kind of uh, yeah. beings but um from from about the late 70s especially into the 80s uh and on in the field of ufology uh contact experiences were um were focused on the negative the abduction the alien the painful unpleasant uh, reoccurring alien abduction mm-hmm. And uh, this received a lot of good, worthy attention from many researchers, including a lot of people with good uh, academic credentials like John Mack and David Jacobs. Um, But it focused on entirely the negative end of things. And meanwhile, people were having contact experiences that were not negative. Well, now more of those positive experiences are coming to light. The negative ones haven't stopped by any means. Uh, People still have them. But we are hearing more from experiencers who've had um, transformative uh, experiences that have been beneficial to them. And for for um, about th- almost three years, I participated in an organization called the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial 
uh, encounters. And I was on the board of directors and the research committee. This organization did uh, the first ever global survey of experiencers. There have been smaller surveys in the past, but this was a global survey that involved thousands of people. The initial okay. uh, response was about 3,000 people. Wow. And the um, from 67 countries, and uh, most of them, of course, came from Western-speaking uh, countries. Okay. But the results were really interesting because they, uh, I was expecting to see more of the negative again, that that would predominate, and instead the positive experience predominated. Um, and people talked about um, feeling... Um, Certainly they would be emotionally engaged. They felt that the aliens were not hostile, that they were um, benevolent, that they had a benevolent interest in humanity. And they felt physically changed. They felt psychologically changed. And in fact, when you looked at the things that they described, and these were multiple choices in the first two parts of the survey, they uh, aligned very closely to the same things that people have reported when kundalini is awakened, um, this psycho-spiritual energy mm -hmm. um, that is described in Eastern philosophy, that uh, when it's awakened through um, a spiritual path and meditation and um, you know, adopting uh, as, as high a spiritual lifestyle as you can, this energy gets awakened in people, and it transforms them physically, intellectually, and emotionally. And so here are contactees talking about the same thing. It's like um, uh, in presentations, I've described this as, as, as uh, contact the new kundalini yoga. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to spend you know, your lifetime in an ashram trying to achieve enlightenment. All you have to do is go out and meet Look an up. alien. Uh, yeah. and, <laughs> well, this is a so, I've been studying that in, in more detail. I'm no longer part of FREE. I've gone off on my own uh, to do more independent research, but I'm still uh, researching this, this very interesting phenomenon. Well, it, it's, and there has always been this stigma on alien contact. It's always been this negative thing, I think. Um, this is a breath of fresh air with this, this whole field, this idea. Because, I mean, Amber, for example, I mean, you're, you're scared, I mean, you've always been kind of freaked out yeah. by the idea of alien well, contact or, I've always been, or abduction. That's well, a very no, negative term Well, no, I've always been right freaked there. out, but I think a lot of it was Hollywood because yeah. you watch these movies. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, but the Hollywood version of, um, oh, what's his name? Fire in the Sky. Yeah, Travis Walton. Tra Travis Walton. That was terrifying. <laughs> and there's parts of that movie that when I think about to this day literally make me want to, like, for real gag. Because there was just gross, I, I don't know. Well, so anyway, it was a pretty disturbing but then, movie. But I then mean... you think, like, what? This is based on a true story. Because I'm 13. I don't know any better. 12, 13. Mm -hmm. And then you get that in your head. And then you watch movies like Independence Day and all these other things when I was little. Like, the aliens come and they destroy you. And then it doesn't help that I have some really creepy alien dreams that are just like, what? What was that? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think I've gotten with, like, we were calling it, like, a renaissance with this UFO stuff and aliens. I mm. think I've gotten away from being so freaked out by the idea and I kind of welcome the idea of seeing something or experiencing something and not thinking, like, they're going to abduct me and, like, drill things in my head. And Well, Rosemary, I mean, from your, for, from your point of view, the, this negative connotation, this negative stigma that I'm, I was referring to when it comes to alien contact or alien, well, let's say alien contact, uh, do you think it just comes from Hollywood or is there other factors here that have kind of 
uh, imprinted that stigma on what, what what we know today as alien contact. Is there anything else you you think would be would have, would have uh, affected it that way besides Hollywood? Well, uh, Hollywood is uh, a big factor, uh, yeah. yes, and we all know that fear sells. I mean, just look at what's happened in the paranormal field. Every every haunting now is a demonic yep. haunting with yeah. ghosts that want to rip your skin off. Yep. Uh, and uh, fear sells, and happy space brothery kind of stories less so. <laughs> so it doesn't surprise me that Hollywood goes for the Battle of L.A. and Independence Day yep. and the day the world stood still, the earth stood still, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, War of the Worlds, uh, because um, people will go see that. And, and be scared, but then the audience thinks that this is, uh, if aliens are going to come, this is what's going to happen to us. Yeah. Um, I believe that there are a range of, uh, we've had throughout our history, a range of contact experiences from the hostile to the benevolent. I think it's a mix. Uh, I have been told by many people in the field that um, they feel that the emphasis is on the negative uh, and that uh, Hollywood is manipulated by uh, the powers that be to present certain scenarios to the mass public to acclimatize them to certain ideas. And for a while we had the E.T., you know, the E.T. come home sort of thing, uh, acclimatizing people to the friendly E.T. In other words, there's an E.T. presence on Earth. Get used to it, people. And um, this has certainly been documented throughout human history. It's nothing new since uh, Kenneth Arnold saw the the flying discs over Mount Rainier. We've had the modern UFO era mm-hmm. and plenty of eyewitness testimony, which uh, unfortunately has been uh, jumped upon and ridiculed uh, as uh, from the skeptics and denouncers. Um, one of the uh, books that I brought out uh, earlier this year uh, with a co-author of mine, Michael Bryan, mm-hmm. uh, was called the Road. It's called the Road to Strange: UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, and it's a collection of um, most of them never before published first-person accounts of contact in varying degrees. And the book has done extremely well because there are other people out there who have had their experiences, they've been afraid to talk about them. Yeah. So it's very validating for people. Well, yeah, and I, just until, well, 10 years ago, now it's been 10 years ago, Amber's grabbing coffee. She'll be back here in a second. Um, up until 10 years ago, when we had our sighting, the, the first time we saw something in the sky, you know, it, it was not a plane. Uh, but before that, I mean, I was always kind of like, well, you know, what are these people seeing? You know, maybe people are just imagining things and they're seeing all these crazy things. But when you experience it for yourself, like we did, right? One night, just out of nowhere, it was myself, Amber, and Tom, and we saw something in the sky and we couldn't explain it. We just could not explain it. And I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I came into work that Monday. This was a Saturday when we saw this. And I came into work that Monday and... Anybody that came up to me, they're like, hey, how was your weekend? I'm like, I saw a UFO this weekend. You know, and this is where I work at. This is a place of business. Uh, but I didn't care. I, I was so, I wanted to tell people about this. Like, look, we saw something, and I don't think this was a plane. I mean, I don't know what it was, right? I couldn't explain it. And I can only imagine it for someone who, you know, before that, I didn't understand that. Uh, now I understand it and where a lot of people are, have been going through where they're afraid to say things because, yeah, they do fear their reputation could be tarnished. They fear they could lose their job. People will think that you're crazy. Um, and I just don't simply, I simply myself believe there is something out there. There's something going on here. 
And it seems that more and more people, especially these days, are seeing more and more things. Um, but I do understand now, that was the problem I had. And I understand what, what you're talking about, too, where, yeah, I think people, uh, when, they, when they do see that there are other people out there seeing the same thing, they may be more comfortable to come forward and, and talk about this stuff. Does that make, any, does that make sense? <laughs> it does. And, you know, even if some of them don't, they've at least had their own experiences yeah. validated for them. And sadly, um, some of these uh, witnesses get uh, turned upon by their own family members. Uh, and uh, we've got some cases in, uh, Michael and I have some cases in uh, the Road to Strange book where um, people witness something with another person, yeah. a friend or a family member, who then later denied that they saw anything. Oh, I would be so frustrated. Uh, and yeah. Or they had family members scoff at it, like, mm -hmm. oh, well, it must have been your imagination. And then, uh, you know, the government people and the scientists come in with, like, uh, were you drinking that night? Were you high? Um, it, do you have a, a psychiatric problem? Uh, the automatic assumption being that there's something wrong with you if you've had this kind of experience. Well, I mean, I, the questioning thing we're talking about that you just referred to, I don't know if that's necessarily, we, like, that situation that we, we've, and we've talked about this, this sighting a bunch of times on the show here, mm -hmm. but when we saw that, we reported to MUFON, mm -hmm. right? And they, they sent us a questionnaire. They, now, they didn't grill us in some room with a light over our head, but they sent us a questionnaire and said, you know, do you have a history of any of these things? You know, have do you have mental illness? Do you have any drug problems? Blah, blah, blah. So they asked us all those questions, and I thought that was, you know, for a good reason. Um, I don't know if, I think, I don't, I, you know, I guess it's a matter of how you approach it. I didn't feel, I didn't feel uncomfortable answering, answering those questions to the MUFON people when they asked me, do you do drugs? Do you do anything, right? Were you under the influence of drugs that night? No, I wasn't. You know, we were, that was it. So I don't know if that's, I think that should be asked. I think people should be asked those questions if they're saying that they saw something in the sky or they, they say they, they've seen a UFO or something like that. Um, I think that some people, though, what maybe what you're getting at, Rosemary, is that and I mean, I've had this happen to me, too. Like, hey, we saw something. Oh, yeah. How high were you? You, it's obvious that you're nuts. You have a problem. I've been, I've been, I've been ridiculed the same way. I think is that kind of where that you're going with that, Rosemary? Is it's more of a ridiculing tone that, that people will come after people with? Well, yes. It's that that information is then automatically used to dismiss the entire experience. Yeah. And the the free survey did the same thing. We asked those people also about um, you know drugs, alcohol. Um, Psych psychological issues, yeah. uh, anything running in the family. And um, the thing is that um, we, we can't dismiss a lot of these experiences out of hand because let's, let's say that someone does a recreational drug that opens up their senses to alternate realities. Do we dismiss that experience as, um, as false then? And I don't think we can automatically do that. There are people who have... Um, certain um, psychological conditions like um, autism, certain kinds of autism, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, where they have these experiences too on a more frequent basis than uh, most other people because they have different barriers. Yeah. And yeah. so we can't just sweep all that stuff under the rug and say, well, because of those things, these experiences are not real. There are plenty of people who have had experiences without any of those issues. But it is right to ask, because mm -hmm. one thing that we need to do with data is we need to collect a lot of it and then see how it falls into patterns. Yeah, 
totally. And I, you know, and I, I understand that. You know, they should they should collect everything they can when it comes to these experiences. Just for that, um, I think it is the ridiculing type thing. And like you said, to take that data and use it to automatically, because I mean, you know, the, the the funny thing about an opinion or, or what people believe, and, and this is an unfortunate animal of all this stuff, is if, like, for let's just say, for example myself there are no ufos there's nothing out there you're completely nuts right that's an opinion that i'm standing firm on for example um and then any idea that comes my way no matter how much evidence is presented to me for for the opposite of that opinion i'm still going to find a way to punch holes in that because this is the opinion that i have and i'm going to stick to that it doesn't matter if it's right or if it's true that's my opinion and i think a lot of people get stuck in that rut and they don't want to listen to other ideas and look at other evidence when it comes to UFOs, for example. I think some people are just stuck on their idea, and that's it. And that's really unfortunate. And it happens to researchers, too, and, and in all fields across the board. I mean, we have resistance in the Bigfoot field to anything interdimensional. Uh, we, in ufology, uh, ufology was dragged kicking and screaming into the abduction arena, and uh, now that things have flipped into uh, an evolution of that, uh, there's still a lot of, um, you know, don't want to go there attitudes. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, researchers really need to examine their, their own motives. If you're going to be a researcher and collect information and deliver it to the public that's in a meaningful kind of way, you do have to be open to all possibilities and following the leads. I've certainly had to alter my own opinions over the years because of the data I've uncovered. And that's just the way it goes. You can't um, automatically shut the door. For example, uh, when I uh, started researching shadow people in earnest and I was uh, starting to make the connections between shadow people and the jinn and also finding that shadow people had a role in ET abductions, yeah. um, I was roundly dismissed by all the abduction researchers as, oh, this isn't important. Oh, yes, well, shadow figures in the house, you know, not important, not important, has nothing to do with the abduction. Well, yes, it does. <laughs> and there was only one researcher, that I, living researcher, that I found who uh, had any appreciation for um, that perspective, and that was Ann Druffel, and she was already familiar with the gin. Um, Gordon Creighton, who um, is no longer with us, but he founded and published the Flying Saucer Review in England, he said back in the 70s that um, researchers would, uh, in ufology would understand things better if they broadened their perspective to uh, take a look at entities like the jinn, who are shapeshifters. And nobody paid any attention to him. Nobody, Keel was called a crackpot when he came out with a lot of his ideas. Uh, jumped on, accused of fabricating, uh, you know, just look at the ideas in the Eighth Tower and Operation Trojan Horse, uh, even the Mothman prophecies, um, you know, Keel was on to something yeah. before most other researchers got there. And what, what did he get from his colleagues? Nothing but abuse. Mm -hmm. And it, it happens over and over again. I suspect that um, there, this goes on in general. It's probably human nature to do that sort of thing. Look at how resistant um, people were to a heliocentric universe. The Inquisitors oh, yeah. uh, did not like that back in the day. <laughs> yep. If you said the sun was the center of the solar system, um, yeah. and uh, so it goes. I, I think some people, when it comes to defending an idea that they have or an opinion that they have, and that and that we've 
something that I've been I've been fascinated with for years, especially in academia, is is people just simply sticking to an idea no matter what. And I've seen this happen over and over again. It's like, here's the evidence, man. You're wrong. <laughs> Don't know what to tell you here. Well, Nothing and, personal. And that's what happens in archaeology right now with like Dr. Robert Shaw. Oh uh, yeah, we we talked about Graham him Hancock. A lot, yeah. You know all that and like yeah. just that they don't want to look at it but then the evidence starts to build up because you keep seeing stuff getting older and older and like go back oh well look at hey we found this gobekli tepe thing what's this mm-hmm. oh it you know it constantly yeah. redefines well, stuff it starts out as just a you know a, a hill of evidence and then it becomes a mountain of evidence next yeah. to you and i don't know what certain point a person gets to where they have to secede and say i'm okay you know what you're right i i was wrong i and I guess people have a problem just saying they're wrong. <laughs> I think that just goes back to ego, too, sometimes, I think, especially in academia. Um, I, I, I guess that's the ultimate, the ultimate, uh, you lost, you know, that's that the ultimate, you're done, you, you don't, I mean, it's, I don't think it's wrong for someone to, I don't think a person is not an intelligent person for saying they're wrong about something, but I think. A person who works in academia, for example, that's their entire life. That's their career, possibly. They probably have books on the subject. Um, for them to refute uh, something like that, that would um, admit that would be defeat. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's an idea that I've, I've thought about so much, and it kind of drives me nuts because I've seen things where people clearly are wrong. They are in the wrong with something. There's proof to back it up, but they will still fight and fight and fight. And I guess it's just them defending an idea and not wanting to admit defeat in a situation. I, that's just kind of, it's, it's such a weird thing. <laughs> I, I don't well, it, it is. And some of the defenses then get more and more ludicrous, the lengths yeah. that um, have to be gone to in order to defend an, an obsolete idea. But uh, I've, I've thought for a long time that history is not fact. It's opinion and interpretation of mm. evidence. And uh, just as Amber was saying, you know, as, as evidence, new evidence comes along, uh, there is a resistance to it because uh, it requires rewriting what we know about something. Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems to be, um, you, you would think that the, the learning institutions should be at the forefront of change and new ideas and, and embracing new evidence. And uh, they seem to be the last to get on the bandwagon. Yeah, very slow. Very slow to anything like that. You know, and, and it's the world we live in today, much like information, how fast that travels, um, ideas and and the way we are as people are changing much. Uh, um, they're changing a lot quicker than I've ever seen anything in my entire life so far. Um, it seems like just in the last couple of years, I don't want to go all political or anything like that, but just in the last couple of years, though, we have seen ideas, movements, um, really wonderful, interesting things happening overnight that are truly making changes to and changing the way we think as people in certain ways. And we're talking about we're talking about ideas that have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And this whole these it's all changing, it seems like overnight. Um, and that, that really just that's amazing to me that we can we can do that. And it, it, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's, it's well you know strange, one of the reasons you know? why we can now scott is yeah. we have global mind uh thanks to social media and the internet and 24 7 access to information and news we have global mind yeah yeah and so we have a more uh uniting of mass consciousness now than 
at, at unprecedented levels yeah, uh, yeah. more than ever before in history, and this enables change to take place at a faster and faster rate. Yeah, I mean, have you noticed that, though, too? I mean, because I've been saying this for a while. The last couple of years, we have had ideological changes that have literally happened overnight. And it, it, it's amazing to me to see that because I never thought we'd see some things that we're seeing now. Uh, have you noticed that too, Rosemary? Well, I have, and I think some of it is uh, forces that have been built up for a long period of time that finally reach uh, a breakthrough point yeah. uh, for a, a variety of reasons, and then it's a domino effect. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago, and this is, speaking of ideas that, that are kind of uh, numbing um, and I and I really want to hear I want to hear about this. You mentioned the interdimensional properties of the Sasquatch, obviously Bigfoot, to people out there. I've heard this idea a couple of times uh, lately, or in the last couple of years. What's what? Okay, well, I'm just going to flat out ask. What what is this about, <laughs> Rosemary? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's about evidence that's been there all along that is increasingly coming to the forefront that um, indicates that. Bigfoot is probably not a flesh-and-blood creature of physical Earth. Uh, it seems to be uh, an, an entity or being that can exist in our reality, but has an existence in an alternate reality. It has supernatural properties. And these include sudden appearances and disappearances, the ability to become invisible immediately, teleportation, that is rapid transport, suddenly here, suddenly there, without having walked or run from one place to another, uh, walk on snow without leaving footprints, uh, footprints that start in the middle of nowhere and end in the middle of nowhere, uh, telepathic communication. Uh, these sorts of things have been always documented, and they've been uh, like ufology pushing abduction under the rug. They've been pushed under the rug by uh, the dominant forces in Bigfoot research uh, who really want Bigfoot to be like a tiger that you go out and bag. Uh, <laughs> and, and yet uh, the evidence keeps pointing in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, I have always believed that Bigfoot is interdimensional as well as um, probably most, if not all, of the mysterious creatures that we come into contact with, they, um, they all exhibit uh, properties that are not characteristic of physical animals. I just, uh, last month, published uh, a book to this regard written by Paul G. Johns Johnson, who's been um, a longtime UFO and Bigfoot researcher in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I wanted to publish his book is he has a science background, and he has a whole section on quantum Bigfoot and making the argument for why Bigfoot is a cryptid from an, another reality. And, in fact, the title of his book is Chasing the Elusive Pennsylvania Bigfoot, a Cryptid from Another Reality. Ron Moorhead is another researcher who's come out with um, more material on the quantum Bigfoot idea, and yet there's still incredible resistance to this, people mm -hmm. who think they're... Uh, you know, they're going to um, lay a trap for Bigfoot and catch him, and, uh, you know, it's it's uh, all going to be proven that it's some long-lost creature from uh, primeval Earth. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case. I, and I guess that does explain a lot, a, a, a lot of things. I mean, I've never seen such an elusive creature, as you've said also, Rosemary. Um, 
we found, I mean, I've heard these questions before. I know you have, Amber. I'm sure you have too, Rosemary. Okay, well, why can't we find any carcasses or droppings or, or any type of uh, waste from what we would refer to as a Sasquatch, right? Uh, which does lend right into this idea of, well, if it's interdimensional, it just kind of comes in and out of our reality into whatever reality it's in. Um, because the thing with the Sasquatch has always been this. We've had, there's been a handful of people out there, and we've seen, we've seen the, couple, the, the hoaxes that have happened over the years. Um, it just seems like the, in this, with this subject, with Bigfoot or the Sasquatch, we just, I, I personally have never seen, or I, I'll just say I haven't seen anything that I thought was like really conclusive evidence of this thing. And maybe, it, is it because of this idea of this interdimensional idea where if it's just going in and out, that's why we can't capture any evidence of this creature? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a hard thing for me to get my arms around. Um, well, that, that's what I believe is that uh, we're not getting any physical evidence because there's no physical evidence to be had. There you go. And uh, the indications are that Bigfoot is, um, you know, like a lot of ETs we encounter, extremely intelligent. Uh, this, is, this is not some primitive animal roaming the planet. This is a very intelligent species of being. Uh, and uh, they have the ability to come into to our material uh, reality. Uh, for whatever purpose, and they're not sitting down for interviews, so we don't really know what their game <laughs> plan is, if they have one. Yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, these characteristics about Bigfoot have been observed and reported over and over again. And uh, Paul Johnson collected a tremendous amount of data over a 20-year period, and he, he got into it um, just kind of almost by accident. You know, he's really primarily interested in UFOs, and uh, had no foregone conclusions about Bigfoot when he started his research, but uh, after uh, a number of years at it, realized that there was something else going on here Mm -hmm. uh, because too many people who did not know each other, did not know anything about Bigfoot uh, in, uh, you know, uh, independent locations, were reporting the same kind of phenomena. Uh, And he, um, he does an excellent job of explaining the quantum mechanics principles that could be applied to this to a lay audience. And uh, that was um, one of the reasons why I really wanted to get his book published, because it it makes that information, very complex information, accessible and understandable. Well, and that's the stuff that I'd like to hear, is is the actual technical complex ideas of this. If this is some type of... uh, quantum creature i do want to hear i'm gonna have to grab this book now (laughs) amber order the book order it (laughs) i will have it at troy's oh oh oh, cool no we'll grab it next month because i do want to get into those i I like the technical stuff like that um and that yeah that that's just that it's an idea i've seen this and i found it fascinating when you when you said when we were talking about what we're going to talk about today you said the interdimensional properties of the sasquatch and i'm like i the few people I've talked to about this, it's been kind of more high level, uh, but getting down into what this may be. And, you know, I think you already alluded to that, Rosemary. We don't know what the purpose If Let's say, for example, this is uh, this is this is the truth. This is what this is. We don't know what their 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 motives are or their purposes uh, for them to come into our reality. Right. I mean, I don't I can't think of I, I can think of a couple ideas, maybe. Um 
my well, they seem to like our food because uh, so many of them are seen eating. They're seen eating, uh, you know, berries and nuts and things like that. Uh, they will sometimes raid uh, campsites. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a food issue going with some of them. I was going to say hunter gatherer type of thing because that it seems like maybe, and this is just talking just off the, off the hip here. Uh, perhaps they have this I you know this this ability to move between dimensions. And maybe where they live, the food just isn't that good. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't know. Well, you know, it's, it's like we take a trip to another country uh, for the exotic atmosphere, the food, the change of scenery. Maybe that's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe they just come for a little vacation. Like, I'm going to go to the other dimension. I'm going to go to the, the, the other side here and, and hang out and get some fresh air. Maybe where they live really just sucks. Maybe the atmosphere is bad. Maybe there's no food there, and that's why they have to come over and get food from us. I, I know it's crazy talk. Not crazy talk, but it's, it's weird talk uh but it's an interesting idea you know along the lines of this interdimensional property we're talking about with the sasquatch and it does make sense though it makes total sense because there's just nothing out there there's no evidence to be had as we as we you said earlier right um and that's what keeps blowing my mind about this subject there's just nothing there but people keep looking for them well this is uh, one of the frustrating things i i think uh, especially that i find in the field and it's like, well, okay, if you've believed in Bigfoot, if you've been convinced that Bigfoot is nothing but a flesh-and-blood earth creature, at, at least be open to the possibility that it might be something else. You don't have to switch camps necessarily, but just be open-minded about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, there are, are some in the field who are very resistant to that. You know, they've got their shotguns and their traps, and they think that, um, uh, you know, they're going to get a Bigfoot. Uh, sooner or later, and uh, that's just luck. that's just glorified hunting. That's all it is. <laughs> it's just glorified hunting. It's someone who just wants to go to the woods and hunt, and that's perfectly fine too. Uh, but you just call it where it is. You're hunting. I mean, yeah, you're. I guess. Why would you want to hunt a Bigfoot though? I mean, do you really want oh to shoot God, it? Because well, it'd be the ultimate trophy for some of those people. Like, look what I got. I got Bigfoot. I, I guess so. I, I just don't. That's the whole male thing that I don't understand. Wow. I'm, I'm not a hunter, so I don't yeah, get how the, that works. Bag of Bigfoot. Um, there, there are a lot of, uh, of you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, good old boy hunters in the field, and yeah. they want a bag of Bigfoot. Uh, and um, people certainly have shot at foot uh, out of fear and and uh, worry that they're going to be assaulted in some way. And uh, we have cases where uh, they say uh, they know they shot point blank, and yet. The bullets either went through the creature or just vanished somehow. I had absolutely no effect on it. Yeah. So um, there are researchers uh, like um, um, Kuwani and uh, Kelly Lapsaritis out in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they've had a lot of telepathic contact with uh, Sasquatch. And um, researchers who have, they say that, yes, we have the capability of harming Bigfoot and that that is a concern among uh, the Sasquatch creatures who come in varieties just like human beings yeah. uh, with different motives, intents, attitudes, size. Uh, there are patterns, of course, but there seems to be some differentiation among them. They're not all exactly the same. Well, like, um, pe- like people. And, like people. We're all, right. We all kind of look different. Yeah. Right, and some of us are nice people, and some of us are kind of hostile. <laughs> we have terrorists and criminals, and yeah. uh, you know, we, it runs the gamut. Mm. And uh, so, why why would not other intelligent species also have that variety among them? Yeah, 
That's so interesting. I, I, I have to grab this book when we're in Alton next month. Um, Cause I do want to, I want to get into the nitty gritty of this because this is a, it's a new, it's a new idea for me. I haven't given it as much time as I should have. That's why I'm glad we're talking about it today. Cause I do want to want to dive into this some more and see what this is all about. Um, also, another thing we, we wanted to jump on today, uh, contact with the dead, we were going to talk about also. And I know my segues are just absolutely They're brilliant. Horrible. My, bad, my segues bad, are bad, just, bad, I'm killing bad. it today with the segues, man. It's because we're doing this in the morning. <laughs> yeah, we, we should. After we went to bed at like yeah, 3 a.m. Yeah, Rosemary, I, yeah, this probably wasn't the most intelligent idea on my part <laughs> to say, let's do this at 1030 in the morning on Saturday after we had a party last night at the house <laughs> here. So... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm not all on it. I don't think we're either of us are on all eight cylinders right now, Amber. But yeah, my segues, I know, are brilliant. I'm really doing well with those this morning. But one of the things yeah. I remember when we were on the conference circuit back in the day and we were at the Low Hotel in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were somewhere in the hotel and Rosemary pulls out this box and it starts making weird sounds and scanning the radio. And it was the, Frank, the first time I had seen a Frank's box in action. Now, Rosemary, do you still use stuff like that when you go on investigations? Like, do you still find it useful, or have you changed your mind on devices like that over the years? Uh, I don't use them as much as I used to. Uh, I still do use them, and I've experimented with uh, different varieties. I, I no longer use the boxes that Frank Sumption um, built. Uh, all, all the ones that I had from him were very fragile for travel, and um, I switched to uh, an, another kind called the Mini Box, which um, is no longer in production either, uh, made by a man named Ron, Ron Ricketts in Texas. And um, I have, uh, I, I've used both the SB11 and the SB7, which are popular, basically radio sweep. That's what they do. Yeah. They, they, they sweep the radio band and create a, a white noise jumble that... Um, facilitates both what I call passive EVP, that is, um, you don't hear it until playback from your recording device, but it also facilitates two-way real-time communication. The hazard being that depending upon how you have your sweep set, uh, you can pick up uh, auto, you know, understandable bits of broad radio broadcast that might be misinterpreted uh, as uh, EVP. But over the years, I have recorded too many unexplained communications where um, voices have literally ridden on top of the noise, uh, top of the radio noise, uh, to say understandable phrases and sentences. I feel that really your best instrument for engagement with the unseen is yourself, your psychic sense, and your own body. Uh, and so I've emphasized more of that in, uh, in recent years. Um, I take very little equipment with me on investigations anymore. I never was a big gadget person anyway, and a lot of the stuff that gets trotted out on TV is mm -hmm. for show. Mm -hmm. It looks good. Does it really do anything? Well, how are you going to calibrate these devices anyway, and what are you going to calibrate them against? Yeah, you have, uh, you have, so no, you have no baseline how, how you to work with. Value yeah, how do you evaluate what you're getting when there's no baseline of calibration? Yeah. But they look good on TV. <laughs> well, you know, Doug and I you were know. gadget guys for, you know, back you know, many years ago. We were gadget guys for, maybe, I would say, maybe about six months. We were really interested in gadgets and, and playing around. And we quickly fell into the same thought, the same thought line that you're in, you, you, you've been in, I'm sure, for a very long time. 
uh, where we just say, you know, let's just go there and experience this thing. Um, I think most people want to use gadgets, obviously, or all these gadgets that are out there as a means to, you know, to document and create evidence, which is really great. I, I, I mean, the more evidence, the better. Um, but I think I, I know I've been at this point for many years now where I, I do just like to go somewhere on my own, possibly bring a recorder or something maybe, but that's about it. And if I hear something or I experience something, that's for me. That, that's, I'm not looking to like get this thing on the cover of a magazine or something like that or whatever it might be. It's for me. I just want to experience that. Um, and I think those are yourself and your mind and your psychic ability. If you have, I mean, I think everybody has a psychic ability if they want to use it. Those are your best tools to have out there in the field. Um, and I don't even think you can calibrate those things. How, I mean, how would you calibrate yourself against anything? Because we still don't know the baseline. You see what I'm saying, Rosemary? Uh, exactly. Yeah. So, but I think those are the best tools that you, you really do have is just yourself. Uh, and I, uh, I do think that it is important to collect evidence. Uh, so there needs to be a balance between the two. You know, we, we need to have some devices that will capture video and audio. Yeah. Um, but a lot of what happens in our engagement with the unseen doesn't register on equipment anyway. Um, and uh, so I, I think that you need to bring some sort of balance of both in. Yeah. And I, I think with some people, yes, there's um, a tendency to rely too much on the equipment. Uh, they want something to do it for them, to show them, to prove it to them. But if you stay in the field long enough, you ultimately realize that uh, your own psychic senses are becoming engaged. And the more you are in this field, uh, the more open you get. Yeah. And so that, that requires some intention to, uh, to stay on top of that so that you're not overwhelmed. Yeah. So, um, well, working as an engineer, it's an interesting mix. as an engineer, like what I've been doing for many years, even to this day, working in a te- in technical field and tech and stuff that I do, it's so funny because I still don't trust machines. As many years as I've been working on things and understanding them and how they work, the inner workings of these systems, I still don't trust them. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> I'm always double checking how machines work, how they perform, and, and that's you know kind of what you do. But I always have had this thing in the back of my mind like this is a machine. This. This don't have any purpose. It don't have any action, you know, for itself. It is just something that was assembled and put together. Um, and while I know, you know, in what I do, machines, I mean, pe- that's what people do. They, they have to rely on a machine to give them their information or their evidence to perform a task, right? Um, mm-hmm. And while I do understand that in a hard scientific field, in the paranormal, that to me, it, every year that goes by, I find that to be a little bit more insane. Not not insane in, in a bad way, but how could you be relying completely on a machine for something that you know nothing about yet? <laughs> I mean, really, we don't know anything about this stuff. There's, there's a lot of ideas, I'm, I know, but nobody has any concrete ideas on, you know, on, on how a spirit may be able to contact us or speak to us. Um, I know there's tons of information out there, don't get me wrong, but I find the idea of someone completely and wholeheartedly relying on a machine or you know, any type of meter to, to gauge an idea of, okay, well, there's definitely a ghost in this room, right? 
I, I don't understand that. I think, you know, like you said, I think it's a, it's a great mix between the two of the, the human element and the machine element, right? Uh, I, go ahead. Oh, well, well, it is, and um, here's, uh, here's where the interesting mix comes in when it comes to the unseen, the paranormal, and contact with the dead, is that there is some sort of interaction between machine and human consciousness that greatly influences the results. So human consciousness becomes the wild card. Yeah. And this has been borne out <clears throat> for decades now, in uh, serious research. <clears throat> this is uh, an idea that has failed to be appreciated in the paranormal field while everybody's been running around with their gadgets. But in the field of serious EVP and instrumental transcommunication or ITC mm -hmm. work, uh, it became evident early on, and when I say early on, early on in the 20th century, that there was something in the consciousness of the operator that um, made the device function better or worse, and that configurations of equipment that work spectacularly for one person would not work for another person maybe even at all. So there is some sort of frequency issue here uh, with the device itself, the energetic connection between the human and the device, and what is in a person's energy field. And some people seem to be I would say, more attenuated or attuned to the spirit realm. And so when they put their effort into communication with mechanical devices, there's uh, something, there's a combustion that happens. Yeah. This has been borne yeah. out in scientific research. Just look at the research of um, physicist William Tiller uh, on storing intentionality in a box. And Wilhelm Reich preceded him. Uh, with uh, the storing of orgone in devices. Uh, Tiller has demonstrated uh, amply in the laboratory how you can put your intention into a device, any device. It doesn't matter what it is or whether it has a current running through it or not. You can program it for something, for some intention. It holds the energy of human consciousness. This is the fundamental principle behind psychometry, too. So the, re the serious researchers who are pursuing communication with the higher realms and with the dead and experimenting with arrays of equipment, um, a lot of them understand this, that you, you have to put your consciousness in the right place to do this kind of work. And that, sadly, has not translated into the paranormal. Uh, I've been uh, lecturing and advocating for many years that uh, if you want to be effective and paranormal, if you really want to do the best work possible, you have to pay attention to your spiritual house and your consciousness. You have to establish a practice of meditation. You have to have some sort of spiritual underpinning. You have to be able to understand how your consciousness projects into the environment mm -hmm. and affects it and comes back to you to affect you. And you can learn these things through taking even rudimentary introductory energy healing classes, psychic development classes, but... Um, these ideas really have not permeated the paranormal community in, to any significant degree. They still rely too heavily on gadgets. Ghostly talk! <laughs> <laughs>